0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv
1: Hello, welcome to The Client Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, today is a special crossover Weeds EK Show episode, a post-debate special. Uh, Matt Iglesias and I talk about both the debate that the Democrats had the other night uh, in Iowa and the debate, I think in some ways more importantly, they did not have, which was a more interesting debate. And so we end up getting pretty deep into some of the differences between uh, the Joe Biden theory of politics and the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren theories of politics. So I think this is a, a fun conversation. Um... Quick notes, uh, the tour, the book tour is uh, beginning to sell out, which is great. Thank you all for uh, all of you who are coming. But we're now sold out in San Francisco, in D.C., in New York, in Brooklyn. Uh, but if you are uh, in Portland, in Boston, in Seattle, in Los Angeles, go to whywerepolarized.com or ezrakline.com to sign up for those dates. And of course, please uh, pre-order the book. And I'll be releasing more dates in more places very soon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but here I am talking about the debate with Matt Iglesias.
0: So we're going to talk about the debate, the state of the campaign, and and some of the debates that didn't really happen. But first, I, I mean, we should talk about what did happen up there on the stage in which it seemed like the big headline takeaway was that a slightly nasty brewing controversy between Warren and Sanders got nastier. And it's a little hard for me to say what it's about. Exactly. I'll say what it's about.
1: So there's a CNN article that came out uh, now a couple days ago that reported that uh, sources close to Warren, basically, um, or so it seems anyway, say that there was a conversation between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, where Bernie told Warren, uh, again, according to sources in the room, although who it is sources to is a little bit unclear in the story. According to sources in the room, Bernie said a woman cannot win the presidency in 2020. And This comes out in the CNN story. Uh, Bernie Sanders denies it flat out. Um, He says, I would never say that. You can see me on television saying a woman can win the presidency. I've said that for a long time. And he makes the point, which I think is a reasonable point, that, look, Hillary Clinton won more votes than Donald Trump in that election. So how could you possibly even – how can anyone believe a woman couldn't win the presidency? Um, But Warren's team uh, releases a statement from Warren later that night on on the day of the the story break saying – Nope, she stands by that. She does not really want to talk about this. It's this not uh, a thing that she thinks should be a huge issue. But that is what Bernie said. I was not in the room, and it is very hard to know what is happening. It is notable that Warren is holding the story. She is not saying, oh, there's probably a misinterpretation or something here. My gut on what happened here is that human beings communicate unclearly with each other. And Bernie probably said something that in his mind was more like Donald Trump will run a sexist, misogynistic campaign against a woman that will make it harder for her to win. And the way he said it or the way it was heard by Warren was a woman can't win. But then there's this whole, whole meta issue about why is this coming out now? This is a more than year old conversation. Why is it being leaked right before Iowa? And it has blown up the alliance, the, the the pact, the non-aggression pact between Bernie and Warren.
0: One thing that I think is noteworthy is that to me, it seemed like something broadly similar. Happened. There was a moment when Warren nearly caught Joe Biden in the polls. And one thing that I thought might have happened at that point is that left-wing people in general, or left-wing like thought leaders, got behind Warren. They could have been like, this is great. Joe Biden's not going to be the nominee. Someone who's for Medicare for all is going to be the nominee. Somebody who wants to take on billionaires is going to be the nominee. And some people did say that, but there was a heavy contingent of the Bernie internet. That took Warren's potential taking of first place as an existential crisis moment for Bernie Sanders and for their sort of larger intellectual project of socialism. And like a ton of anti-Warren content came out from the left at exactly the time she was facing sort of maximum peril from the right And to an extent, I think you have to see the Warren campaign's now effort to, like, nuke Bernie on the verge of Iowa as, on some level, payback for that that even though Bernie didn't personally sort of weigh into that in in the same way, both of them have in fact for months now approached this as a lanes game in which like the goal is to defeat Joe Biden, but the means through which you defeat Joe Biden is by tearing down the other progressive candidate. And it's something that makes a lot of progressive-minded people who, who I know feel very uncomfortable because like they like both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They would prefer either of them to Biden and they don't think this kind of fighting is like constructive politics. But I think narrowly, like... It it makes a lot. It makes a lot of tactical sense.
1: Yeah, and there were. It should be said there were. It, it came out that there were talking points being distributed inside the Bernie campaign a few days before the story hit. That were anti Warren and were explaining, you know, in a, I think a quite normal primary way how to talk people out of supporting Elizabeth Warren and into supporting Bernie Sanders. So there's some growing enmity in the campaigns. I think you're right to foreground the, this fact that the extremely online contingent of the Bernie sphere has been attacking Elizabeth Warren full on. I mean, talking here about folks like Jacobin, um, Nathan Robinson at Current Affairs, the assault on Warren as a professional managerial class snake has has way predated this. And now they're all saying, you know, see, like she's really, but this is politics. Um, And I want to make two points about this that are a bit bigger. One is that, It is not the case that there's any reason to think a woman cannot win the presidency. There's actually a lot of research on uh, women running for office in America. Jennifer Lawless at American University has done a lot of great work here. And it seems women often do a little bit better than men. Now, that might be some amount of Jackie Robinson effect, which women run and, and the difficulties of getting to that point. But in 2018, women candidates did extremely well. If you look at some of the key states, um, like, say, Wisconsin, you have Tammy Baldwin um, is an elected Democratic senator there um, and a woman. Um, So there's no reason to think a woman can't win in 2020. And in general, I think it is almost bad to be having this conversation repeatedly because there is political science evidence suggesting that when you have this conversation, you actually cue people's – at this point – pretty unfounded fears that women can't win. So that's also one reason I'm a little skeptical that this was coming. I have no idea who leaked the story, but this would be, to me, a strange tactical decision for the Warren Warren campaign at high levels to make. Um, I would not be surprised at all if this is something that, say, These reporters had been hearing for a long time. It had been out there. They had been having a little bit of trouble confirming it. And then as people around Warren got more pissed at Bernie, somebody finally gave them the the, the true confirmation they needed. Sometimes stories don't come out in as tactical a way as it seems when you're reading them. Because one thing that uh, Elizabeth Warren has very, very specifically not tried to do is run a kind of I'm with her candidacy. In part because I think they understand this evidence pretty well that you want to be very careful on this. Rebecca Tracer is a great piece over at The Cut about how dangerous and difficult it is for candidates from um, – Groups that have not traditionally won political power to talk honestly about the challenges they face. And she notes that Warren's campaign has handled this very delicately until now. And so – and Warren's campaign did not seem ready for this to come out. Their initial set of answers were very halting and seemed surprised. So I really – I'd be very curious to know the backstory on this, but I don't actually know it.
0: A sort of deeper part of of the backstory of this that I do think is is relevant is that in the specific context of like now, January 2019, to say a woman will face crippling disadvantages as the nominee is like understood as the anti-feminist position to take. But back in the winter of 2016, 2017, and I think throughout all of 2017, If I had said, I don't believe that Hillary Clinton's gender was a significant factor in her electoral defeat, that would have been received by the very same people who are most amped up about what Bernie allegedly did as like me being the bad misogynist. And like, how can I deny the evident reality that misogyny held Hillary back right and if you look at like Hillary's official account of what happened in a book literally titled what happened she very much foregrounds the idea that being a woman is what hurt her right was like decisive in causing her to lose that election and I wrote and said like several times at the time like I mean I know a lot of the people who worked in Hillary world and I know the depth and sincerity of their commitment to promoting women in American politics and I was very uh, vexed by their lack of consideration of like what the second order consequences of going with this narrative were going to be and I just think I think a lot of the democratic electorate has responded in like a very predictable way to like the literal like the like the the literal words i i hate sort of hate the phrase the establishment but like the sort of post nova remnants of hillary world really have clearly articulated the view that sexism was a crippling disadvantage for Hillary Clinton and also that Donald Trump is a dangerous authoritarian whose existence in office is like an existential threat to American democracy. It is very logical conclusion from those two points to be like, I might like to see a woman be president, but I don't want to risk the future of the American constitution over it. Let's go with Joe Biden. Let's go with Bernie Sanders. Let's go with with whatever. And it honestly, as an argument, never really made sense to me. Like she says in her book that the criticism she took for her paid speaking engagements was an example of sexism. And like I just don't think it was. Like anybody would get criticized by the left for doing a bunch of paid speeches for investment banks.
1: A couple things here. One is that A striking thing about this story, and it goes to exactly what you were just saying, about a week ago, Joe Biden said, and I'm quoting him a little bit from memory here, but I'm going to get this basically right. Hillary Clinton faced a lot of sexism in 2016. What happened to her was really, really unfair. They they were really unfair to her. Well, folks, that's not going to happen to me. Right. And Biden, on the record, in public, voiced exactly the argument you're just saying, right, which is a logical set of conclusions based on the premises laid out, uh, among others, by the Hillary Clinton campaign or post campaign. It got a lot less attention than this behind closed doors weird thing, which is a general problem, I think, in, in political reporting and the way it gets responded to things that are putatively secret, get a lot more attention than things candidates say in speeches. But Biden really said that. It was very clear what he meant. And while he didn't say a woman can't win, he did imply, certainly, that if you want to win, your best shot is with uh, a a white guy like Joe Biden, or at least a guy like Joe Biden. But I do want to make one point about misogyny in Hillary Clinton, because I think this is actually pretty complicated stuff. One is that it may be the case that women candidates – on net don't do worse than male candidates and they still face a lot of misogyny and so you're seeing among other things composition effects or that mm-hmm. to be a woman candidate you have to be better than a male candidate right twice as good so you're seeing it compensated for in other ways but the other thing that that I really do take seriously with clinton hillary clinton has been one of the most prominent women in american politics for going on 30 years and one of the arguments she made in her book and i think it is very true about her specifically is that she has been through a lot of waves of different kinds of misogyny and different kinds of America coming to terms with the idea that there will be women in politics and has paid a lot of different prices for that has also had some benefits from that right she she very aggressively foregrounded the idea that she was a woman this would be historic i'm with her but nevertheless i think that um hillary clinton's view that Public perceptions of her were extremely inflected by misogyny, going back to her comment um, in the Clinton White House that, you know, what did you want me to do? Stay home and bake cookies. And it created this national furor. You know, was she dismissing stay-at-home mothers? The idea that ideas of Clinton had been shaped over a long period in a pretty misogynistic context and in many cases by quite misogynistic people is, is another point Tracer makes in terms of who's been dominating punditry and other things during that time. I don't think that's wrong. The The situation Clinton is facing um, as somebody who's been in politics since the 80s, basically with her or with uh, Bill Clinton in Arkansas and the situation a female politician who is just bursting onto the national national stage in the last five or six years are facing are, are pretty different.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I just. One distinction that I think should be drawn is there's a difference between does a candidate f- face misogynistic criticism and is a candidate on net? hurt by misogyny, right? And I think one example is if you look at the research in JFK's campaign in 1960, it is obvious that – and you can clearly see, right? So he was Catholic. There had never been a Catholic president before. And he certainly received criticism that was grounded in anti-Catholic bigotry. At the same time, the research on the 1960 campaign indicates that on net, he benefited from being Catholic, that he got super large Catholic turnout. And he did lose some votes to anti-Catholic prejudice but he gained more than he lost then you also have research about Obama in 2008 where I think you see the opposite he clearly gained some votes because he was African American he got the strongest black turnout of anybody ever and Democrats um, now like wish they could go back to that but he also lost white votes, right? And because white people so badly outnumber black people, that was like on net uh, challenging for him. Whereas white Catholics were very numerous in the population in 1960. Women are is a very large group of people. It's not as potent a political identity as, as African American. And that's sort of the, the tricky terrain that people grapple with. But I mean, when I think about joe biden's prospects as, as a general election candidate i am really not persuaded that he will be a stronger candidate because he's a man that like i actually think he will lose that hillary i mean hillary has been like retconned as like the worst politician ever or something but there were a large number of people who were very inspired by hillary clinton's quest for the yes, go watch her
1: in a debate versus joe biden
0: right i mean just she's a more skilled debater, I, I mean, which I think is true. But I mean, I just think on a grassroots level, even though Hillary Clinton's like policy platform was not particularly like amazing. And even though she's not a great poetic orator, what she stood for, right, what she represented meant an incredible amount to millions of people. There was the Pantsuit Nation Facebook group. There was was all this stuff. And Biden is not going to be able to replicate that kind of pro-Biden mobilization. He's going to be just another like old politician with blah ideas. And maybe that's good because it won't turn certain kinds of people off. But I mean, I think there was a real, you know, identity is very complicated in politics. I, we'll, we'll talk about your, your book on another occasion. Um, but like, you know, there's there's two sides to all of this. And I think it's it's telling that when phrased bluntly as like, let's not nominate a woman, people, I think, correctly take that to be like a bad stance for women to like assert that they face crippling obstacles in politics rather than difficulties that are surmountable. Like it's hard to win a presidential election. So I think all i I think all this is correct and and I'd really
1: uh, recommend people read Tracer's piece because I think it like limbs this difficulty very, very well. But, okay, so what happens in the debate is this comes up. Bernie Sanders gives I think a pretty eloquent argument that this is not at the very least what he believes and and argues that you can definitely win the the presidency as a woman. He makes a point um fairly, and to my knowledge, is true that in twenty fifteen or twenty fourteen i maybe it was. He um, went to Elizabeth Warren to see if she was going to run for president because if she was going to, he wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, so he makes all these arguments. Um, Elizabeth Warren does not rebut him or call him a liar, but just also does not say that what he is saying is true and makes an argument about how both her and um, Amy Klobuchar have better electoral records than the men on the stage. Then, at the end of the debate, uh, when (laughs) the cameras are still on but nobody's able to hear what people are saying, there's this now um, very viral moment. Where Warren walks up to Sanders and Sanders has his like hand out, but Warren clasps her hands in front of her. So Sanders retracts his hand and then they have what looks like a somewhat heated quick discussion where he points at her and then he walks away. We don't know what happened. Only Tom Steyer knows what happened because he was nearby <laughs> and has refused to say. The The point I want to make about this is not that I think they said anything all that interesting to each other in that exchange. But that here we are, where um, this is the last presidential primary debate before Iowa. And what happened last night is Joe Biden, who I thought had a particularly bad night as a debater, seemed very low energy, um, was not giving very clear answers. He skated by completely. Um, nobody really took him on. And there had been a bunch of signals, both from Bernie and Warren, that they were preparing a big anti-Biden argument for this debate. Warren had brought out this new bankruptcy plan. Joe Biden had begun talking about how Uh, I'm sorry, Bernie Sanders had begun talking about how Biden was going to blow the election, given what he's done on Social Security and the Iraq war. And aside from a very minor dust up over the Iraq war, the story of that debate is that Bernie and Warren were fighting with each other. And it is not that either of them took apart Joe Biden or that Joe Biden was facing fire all night from the two of them or even anything that Joe Biden said himself. And so, if in a couple of weeks, what happens is that Joe Biden wins Iowa, as is currently seen at least in some polls, although not the Des Moines Register poll that just came out, I think this is going to be seen in retrospect as like a complete political debacle for the left.
0: yes. um should we should we take a break and then talk about the the substance of some of those attacks that that didn't actually come forward? Sure. This was like a truly weird media moment uh, because like there was a Politico story that was like, get ready for Bernie Sanders' attacks on Joe Biden. And it like laid out. And there was,
1: there was Bernie Sanders on TV making attacks on Joe Biden. It wasn't just a, like an anonymous political story. No, 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 story. right,
0: right. It was a like, good – like it was well-reported. But it was like Bernie said some stuff on TV and then there was this political article that like fleshed it out in more detail and then there were like – stories in the intercept and and you know like other like Bernie friendly media like fully laying this out. And the basics of it were that like look, Joe Biden has a selectability pitch, but we're gonna let Uh, Donald Trump say in the Midwestern swing states, here's a guy who was for Iraq. I was against it, which is not really true, but it's something Trump says. Uh, Joe Biden wants to cut your Social Security benefits. Um, And Joe Biden was the champion of NAFTA and Trans-Pacific Partnership. And like this is going to be an electoral fiasco. And also uh, it's substantively wrong. And like Bernie has now in every single debate kind of like needled Biden about Iraq And then Biden has his not really accurate stock response where he's like, aha, Bush tricked me.
1: Well, then he also says, and then Barack Obama turned to me and he told me to end the Iraq war, which is a genuinely weird reframing of what happened there. Yes.
0: Um, Right. But like Bernie didn't. What had been previewed was that Bernie was going to go from like, here's a hit on Joe Biden to like, here's my point about Joe Biden. It just didn't happen. And then Warren put out a uh, plan to change bankruptcy law, which references big changes to bankruptcy law that happened in 2005, that Biden was the major uh, sponsor of. Obviously, nobody in the electorate is like voting on Bankruptcy bill reform in 2019, 2020. The point of this pretty clearly was to cue up a contrast with Joe Biden. The big picture in Warren's proposal is to, um, Make it easier for people who have unsecured debts to just sort of walk away from them in in bankruptcy, um, which I think is a good idea. But there's also this like little laundry list of like weird line items. So it's like you can still pay your union dues even when you're in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy resolution process. And you're reading this, any normal person would be like, what the fuck is this stuff, right? What it is is all of those laundry list items, they are specific Poison pill amendments that Democrats brought into committee in the 2005 bankruptcy reform process that Joe Biden voted against all of them because he was part of the mostly GOP led coalition to get this bill done. And what Biden's campaign says if you if you ask them about this bankruptcy bill is like, "Look, this was going to pass. Biden kind of got on the bus and he was able to make changes to make the bill better. And Warren was setting up the point that like, no, Democrats offered like this laundry list of amendments that would have approved the bill, and Biden helped beat them all back. But then she didn't say any of that. So like, what's the point? It's but like I think it's a
1: important to say here. This is not a, like an attack that Elizabeth Warren has come up with in the year of our Lord 2020. During that period, what Warren was, was a specialist in bankruptcy law. And she was, as an academic who had written in 2004 this book, The the Two-Income Trap, she attacks Biden in that book for his work on bankruptcy reform and actually attacks him in a very, very specific way where she says Joe Biden goes around the country framing himself as an advocate for women because his work on the Violence Against Women Act. And here he is making it harder for women to declare bankruptcy and making it more likely that women are going to end up in poverty and under crushing debt. And you cannot support women in this one way and then then destroy them in another. Uh, We've been at Vox doing this series where we're making the best case possible for the the leading Democratic candidates. Matt had a great one on on, on Bernie. I did the Warren one, and and, and it came out this week. And when I was talking to people around Warren, I, I heard something which I've heard before, which is, Elizabeth Warren's formative political experience is the bankruptcy law fight. And it was shattering for her. Like she loses. And the person she loses to specifically is Joe Biden. And so this goes way back. And it it like Elizabeth's whole uh sorry, Elizabeth Warren's whole worldview on economic policy is built on the foundation of what she learned in in, in bankruptcy law and, and 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 this and contract law around that. And She's been building out a view of how unfairly the American economy treats the powerless versus the powerful, built on that foundation for a long time. Joe Biden represents to her the ways in which the um, American economy and the Democratic Party has made not just its peace with that, but has been a handmaiden of a lot of this rigging of the economy against people. This is the core of Warren's politics, like the molten core of her politics, she then brings out, as you say, this new the, this new proposal this week and then just does nothing with it. It is bizarre. And she needs she needs a moment. I mean, she's running, you know, roughly third in the primary. Like she she needs a couple points. She like needs to shake up the situation.
0: And, you know, and I I thought she did fairly well
1: in the yeah, debate. She, I mean, she's, she's, she's always she's a, good a good public
0: speaker. But right, what's, what's striking about this, I mean, is this really is like her Origin as a politician. Like, if you want to understand why this law professor is now a senator and running for president, it's because as a law professor, she was engaged four years, like part time, but like four years in an effort to defeat this bankruptcy legislation. Um, It went through I mean, I I wrote an article about this. You you can look it up. But it it went through many iterations across two presidencies. It it took a long time. She ultimately lost and she's changed her focus and she broadened it out from thinking about bankruptcy specifically to thinking about corruption in the political system all the themes that she mentioned right but she didn't tie it back to this thing that is both the focus of her academic career and also like literally was a battle with the front runner for the presidency um and it's frustrating to me as a um person who followed this bankruptcy debate at the time in 2005 and, like, wants to write articles about it. But it it also just, like, it doesn't, to me, make sense on the level of logic. And pairing together, right, like, both the critiques that Sanders telegraphed and didn't make and the ones that Warren uh, telegraphed and didn't make, like— to me, as somebody who did not write the case for Joe Biden when we were dealing out these assignments, like my- Which is coming, I want to say. We we will have the case for Joe Biden. There will be one. Um, but it speaks to like what is my actual concern with Joe Biden, because I, I totally acknowledge that like the main things Biden says on behalf of himself, like he does well in head-to-head polls against Donald Trump, um, like that that's very true, and also that these like more- out there, like progressive ideas that like Warren and Bernie are allegedly going to deliver aren't really going to happen. That's also right. I mean, but Biden's he, he's got a good team and he says, I think, a lot of totally reasonable and true things about the world. Uh, but he has this like really unfortunate track record of signing on to bipartisan ideas that are that are bad. I think yes, you know, and like he talks about like I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to work with Republicans, and a lot of people dismiss that, and they're like, that's crazy, like Republicans will never agree to anything. But like I worry more the opposite. I mean, you know, good, like try to work with Republicans, right? And if they slap your hand away, they slap your hand away. But Biden really has worked with Republicans on things like a resolution authorizing the invasion of Iraq and a bankruptcy reform bill that was bad for the middle class, and on uh, sequestration legislation that like crippled the american economy and that to me like it's a it's a real record of achievement but like it's it's, it's like it's that's not good like that's not where you're so you in, you're not just like supposed to make the system work like just for the heck of it
1: well so th- this is i think actually an interesting space um two things one is that on the political game theoretic level a view has taken hold among different players that the Democratic electorate punishes people who go on the attack in these primaries. And so in particular, this is a bit of a bind for Warren and Bernie, because the theory is, is that if any one of them like really rushed Joe Biden, the electorate that might listen to them, but it would go to the other one of them. Right. There's like somebody who's too good of a substitute for them on that stage. And so that like uh, an, an, they see an attack on Joe Biden, like a frontal attack as potentially a murder suicide. There's not very good evidence for this, in my view. Um, You had actually mentioned this, I think, that Ian Sams, the former comms director for Kamala Harris— Notes that uh, Harris jumped in the polls after attacking Biden. That she she was not able to sustain it because she did not like have anything to say after her initial attack and did not herself want to bring back busing, but but it it worked for her for a minute. Pete Buttigieg jumped in the polls certainly in Iowa, New Hampshire after going on the attack from sort of the moderate lane against Warren. Um, so I, I don't really see where this view comes from, but but it has taken quite sharp hold. And, also, they and attacked to be, each other. So yeah, well that, that happened too. Um, so then the other thing though that that uh, I, I want to say here on Biden. So I've helped with the reporting for the um, the case for Biden, just talking to some people around Biden. And this is a thing that I am struck by. I have a lot of concerns watching the debates about whether or not Joe Biden is actually up to the job of the presidency, to just say this very flatly. But one thing that he does not do in these debates is make an argument for his brand of politics and make an argument for why he was right about things, which is what he used to do. Like if you look at old clips of Joe Biden, it is not the case the controversies around him are new, but he used to argue for his position with a lot of force. And so at the debate, what you see is Bernie Sanders attacks Biden on Iraq and Joe Biden says, well, that was a mistake. Uh, I, I, I was wrong. But then, you know. Barack Obama turned to me to personally get every troop out of Iraq. What Joe Biden doesn't do, which I think is what he would have done a couple of years ago, is say Bernie Sanders has been anti-interventionist at every level in every question in American politics more or less for years with maybe the exception of the Afghanistan war. And he's wrong that we actually need to be global leaders, that there are times when we do need to intervene there are great moments in American history like Kosovo, um, some of the mistakes we have made like Rwanda have to do with being being too anti-interventionist. And we need somebody who's going to step into to, to America's uh, role in the world. That's what he would have said before. And similarly here, when I talk to people around Biden, they make the point that This is actually very core to his politics that he – that a difference between him and the left lane is that when the left lane looks at these deals that get struck, they focus on what is bad in them and Joe Biden focuses on what is good in them. The the fiscal cliff deal is the big example of this. So – the um, Bush tax cuts were expiring because they had this 10-year expiration date so they could fit into budget reconciliation rules. So under Obama, there's all of a sudden this huge tax increase coming um, and there are these negotiations with Republicans to to do something about it. Biden ends up negotiating out a deal with Mitch McConnell. And I'm going to get the the um, specifics of it a little bit wrong from memory, but basically he extends all but the tax cuts for the very, very, very richest, and in some cases, tax cuts for the very richest. But he gets a bunch of tax cuts and EITC kind of things for working class. So here's a deal that basically Republicans get a lot of what they want, but Democrats get a lot of things they want too. And Joe Biden and the people around Joe Biden say that was a good deal. It mattered more that we were able to help the poor than that we like screwed rich people on the estate tax. And other people say, no, um, you either could have gotten a better deal by just letting the fiscal cliff expire and then using that as leverage, um, the the tax increase as leverage, or this just wasn't a deal worth taking at all. Biden just disagrees. But the thing you do not see him doing anymore is making a case for those disagreements. Like Joe Biden is a dealmaker. Joe Biden thinks the left is gripped by purity politics and Joe Biden thinks it is better to get like a quarter loaf and not just like I, I almost think that's maybe the wrong metaphor. He thinks it is better to accept some things you really don't like to get some things you really do, because that is how the American political system works. And it's more important to help people than to like feel good about, um, you know,
0: not helping the, the, the people you don't like. But you never hear that from him on the stage. Yes. Yeah, although, I, I mean, I, I, I want to drill down into this fiscal cliff thing because it's seared into my memory. Um, And, you know, it's I think important to understand that on that particular topic, Biden's critics are not just like the far left of the party. Uh, Back when Michael Bennett uh, was still managing to get into debates, like he raised this, right? And and he said, uh, arguing with Biden about this, he said, the deal with Mitch McConnell was a complete victory for the Tea Party. We've been running against this for 10 years. We've lost that economic argument because that deal extended almost all these Bush tax cuts permanently and put in place the mindless cuts we're still dealing with today called the sequester. That was a great deal for Mitch McConnell and a terrible deal for America. Now like maybe Bennett is wrong, um, but like Bennett is not like the ha- Harry l- Reid was furious. The about left this of the deal. Democratic Party. Right. And like Harry Reid was really mad about the deal. He
1: um, threw apparently he threw it into a fire. Right, Like there was a fire, but like famously, he took the deal that it was
0: like the paper and at some point threw it into the fireplace. Right. And I think one of the reasons why there are such strong feelings about this that don't follow like super clear ideological lines is that part of the issue there was like exactly how hardcore should Democrats be in their negotiating tactics. Right. That like Biden's point is, if you look at the terms of this deal, we won some things that were good. Reid's point is that had they just sucked it up and let the Bush tax cuts fully expire, they would have had a much stronger negotiating position. And then I think Biden's counter to that. And and the it's not like Joe Biden just did this rogue. I mean, he was vice president. The counter to that, not just from Joe Biden, but from the people in the Obama administration who agreed with this approach, was that, like, it would be too crazy and chaotic to have this, like, giant tax increase come in in January 1st and then argue for five months about exactly how much of it to roll back with Democrats, like— posturing sort of Tea Party style, like we're not going to give you anything, right? That that would just be not like a not a good way to run the government, right? And Biden's approach, like make a deal before the deadline, make a deal that advances some goals of both people, shake hands, have a nice press conference, like do a signing ceremony. That's how politics should be done. That's functioning governance in the United States of America. And you've written uh, before about like Biden has this profound belief in in the system, that the system works and that he can make it work, but also that you have an obligation to do that, to not do what Harry Reid wanted to do there and like let things get a little bit loopy just because it would have given Democrats more leverage. And to me, that theory smacks to me less of pragmatism than of unilateral surrender. It reminds me of Pat Leahy bringing back the blue slip rule when Democrats had a majority in the Senate just so that Republicans could get rid of it again once they had a majority. We're like, you can make a case for the blue slip rule, but like, what the old bulls of the Democratic Senate caucus were doing there, like, just fucked them over for no reason. It didn't entrench the rule. It just yanked the football away. And like, this is what I really worry about with, with Biden.
1: I, I don't think, I would not call it unilateral surrender. It's a, de- I mean, he made a deal, right? He got things in the Obama administration, right. got things that they wanted. And I will say a little bit more to their, in, in their defense on this. I, I was covering this at the time. And the argument that people were making was that, if you look at the Democratic Senate caucus, the key players here are going to last exactly six seconds after these tax cuts take hold. Like the the Democrats who are – I don't remember exactly who the swing Democrats were and like who lost in 2014 versus who lost in 2016. But, but you're looking at like your Joe Donnelly's, you know, tester, that kind of person – And that as soon as those tax cuts go up, the idea that they are going to be more united in the majority than Republicans are going to be in the minority was just ridiculous and that they were going to get a worse deal pretty soon and take a lot of political damage. The thing I want to say about this, because I do think it's actually interesting, is that I wish people were having this argument more centrally and specifically I wish Joe Biden was having this argument more centrally because this is a way in which I think these presidencies really would be different. So when I think about what's going to happen here with the different candidates, I think you've got like a couple different questions. So one, the single biggest question about how legislatively successful the next Democratic president will be is how many Senate seats get picked up down ballot from them. And an argument the Biden people make, which I think has actually some validity to it, but it depends how how much you think it would hold uh, in, in an ongoing way, is that right now, if you ask, like, the Democrats running for Senate in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Iowa, in Alabama, like, mm-hmm. which candidate do they want to win the Democratic nomination? They Joe will Biden. say Joe Biden. Like, no doubt about it. Like, socialism is not a popular word in Arizona or Alabama, but, like, Democrats, like, would like to keep that Doug Jones seat. And so that's one thing. Um, and then you and have, I think that's a good argument. Like I think that, it's a very like, good argument. Bernie
0: and Warren didn't do their best arguments against Biden, and Biden didn't make his best argument for himself, no. and which so, is that one.
1: So then you get um, into the next question of electability. And again, we I don't know how to think about – Joe Biden has been more robust in the face of criticisms <laughs> I find convincing. And so that may just hold through the entire general election. But so you, you, people can argue about electability. Um, but currently, despite – The criticisms of him getting a lot of play and the whole thing about his son being at the center of the impeachment scandal. Nevertheless, he's held the top position against Trump and had dead polling. So there's electability. And then you get into this issue, though, if you if you net all that out, if you believe that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would be exactly as electable and hold as many Senate seats as Joe Biden, which I think is reasonable, um, you could at least make that argument. Then you get into this question like, well, what would their presidencies look like? And this is a way in which I think they would really look different. I think it is possible, actually, that Joe Biden would get more done than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders um, be, because Republicans will hold quite a bit of power in the Senate, whether it's a majority or not. And what Joe Biden is going to do is cut more deals. And so he's going to get somewhat more things done the Democrats will like. And as the cost of that, he will accept a larger number of things getting done that Democrats really, really, really hate. And that is a different nature to it. Like Bernie Sanders will say no to those deals. He won't get the things he wants in them, but he won't get the things he doesn't want in them either. And not everything has a fiscal cliff dimension to it where there's some kind of external leverage that is gonna fuck everything up if you don't make a deal. So a lot of things are just gonna be, do you wanna cut this deal or not? Joe Biden was behind this Cures Act a couple years ago. And the Cures Act had a bunch of things going on in it. To be honest, I haven't studied it super closely, but it passed 95 to 5 in the Senate. And in that five who voted against it were Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And so this was a a, a deal that had a lot of money for cancer research, which is why Biden cared deeply about it. It had a lot of other things that people felt were giveaways to pharma, which is why Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren didn't like it. And Joe Biden feels like that was worth it. And like, look at the vote. You can see it was worth it. And they feel... No, it wasn't worth it because we gave more to pharma than we should have, and you shouldn't do that anymore. And this is a way in which, like, these are going to be different presidencies, even
0: in the context of Republicans having a lot of power. And I think another thing that's worth mentioning in that regard, because I I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily remember anything in politics that happened before 2015. Was there even politics before 2015? Yes. Uh, When – and also – Biden doesn't bring this up because it doesn't it doesn't serve his tactical interests but like when Barack Obama was president there was a non trivial number of democrats who at various points in time felt that he should have been more willing than he was to make concessions to Republicans to go get things done. Obviously, opinions changed from time to time on different specific circumstances, but I think that both Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton were generally associated with that camp. That I think one specific thing is that people kept floating the idea of doing a corporate income tax repatriation holiday, which is like a kind of goofy. Accounting gimmick.
1: No, r- real quick. What it basically just means is that if you if you bring back money that you're holding overseas for a, in a limited period of time, you basically don't pay taxes on it. You get like a you get like a get out of jail free card in this money you've been holding in Ireland.
0: What they would give you is a discount tax rate, right? Yes. So it would be a tax cut that scores as a revenue raiser. Yes. And so this idea kept kicking around that you could do this, and then you could use the revenue to do an infrastructure bill. Mm -hmm. Right. And Obama's economic team just like really hated this idea. Like they found it to be offensive. I think it really bothered them in their wonk souls that you would enact a tax cut and score it as a tax increase. Well, no, what their argument was was that that money is leverage for
1: a better corporate tax reform sure. later. And right. if you do this, you lose all of that leverage all at once for something
0: very small right and the and the case for doing it, which I know Bill Clinton made vocally, um and you know, you you hear things around the way, um was, look, if we do this, we will get the infrastructure done which like is good on its own terms. Infrastructure is good. Uh, The building trades unions will like it because they like the jobs. The economy could use the stimulus. The bigger deficit that results in the long term is not a big deal because sort of who cares? And people will like it that you did something bipartisan and got something done. Now, Obama held the line on that. In a way that I think Joe Biden maybe wouldn't have, that Hillary Clinton maybe wouldn't have. And the upshot of Obama holding the line on it was not that it created leverage for a better corporate tax reform down the road. It's that Trump used it as a pay-for, not as a pay-for to do an infrastructure bill, but he did a tax cut that scores as a revenue raiser, and he used that to offset the costs of more tax cuts. Mm-hmm. So like in that case, I think in retrospect, the criticism of the Obama administration was vindicated and that like rejecting a deal that was on the table in favor of some hypothetical like better idea just led to a to a worse idea, right? And again, for very obvious reasons, Joe Biden is not going to stand up there and criticize Barack Obama's decision making and say that he would do a, a better job uh, than the patron saint of his campaign. Um, But like to me, as somebody who is around there, like I think that's a topic in which like his his stance has been vindicated and that thinking more like a politician and less like a Ph.D. economist uh, is beneficial, that like ultimately politics is politics and like trying to do things in the here and now has some real benefits because inevitably you win some elections, you lose some elections and like you kind of got to do what you got to do. Yeah, but I don't don't know that. I quite buy that. I, I only in this one
1: sense, which is that the reason that it didn't work out is that Donald Trump won the next election. And if they had been planning all of their like political strategy on Donald Trump will win the next election, just a lot of things look different. But if Hillary Clinton <laughs> had won the next election or Joe Biden had run and won the next election, or Elizabeth Warren, then you'd be glad you didn't sell out the sell down that corporate repatriation. I would just say the big picture here on Biden is that. He will make these deals. Biden has a very coherent theory of politics, I will say. Uh, And and I I will put it in show notes. But I wrote a piece a a while back called Joe Biden will never give up on the system. And it was tagged a bit to when he was praising segregation to senators. But Joe Biden has really like lived his life, not just his professional life, but his life in the Senate. Um, It's a different thing for him. When he came to the Senate, his wife and child were killed in a terrible car crash. He was sworn in at the hospital bed of his son's. The way the Senate has acted for him as a family and as a proving ground, he's had a bunch of different crises. He had multiple brain aneurysms. He was brought through by his own people. I I go through this in in pretty deep detail. He loves the Senate. He loves the way it works. And the other thing that is a connected criticism to the one you were just bringing up against Obama, Matt, is that there was also this criticism that Barack Obama did not invest the time in creating legislative relationships. Mm. And this was just constant, that— He didn't hang out and have senators over to watch football games. He didn't. There's this famous um, line from one of Obama's White House correspondent Dinner speeches where Obama says, people keep telling me to go have a drink with Mitch McConnell. Well, you have a drink with Mitch McConnell, (laughs) which was a joke, but not in any way a joke, right? The last thing Barack Obama wanted to do was hang out with Mitch McConnell. And this was understood at the time correctly as a criticism that Joe Biden believed and Uh sort of comes even in part from Joe Biden world, which is that Joe Biden was often deployed to do that relational work that Barack Obama didn't want to do. Now, the reason I bring this up here is that this is also a big difference between the Biden, Bernie and Warren campaigns where um, Bernie Sanders is known as one of the true like lone wolf personality types in the Senate. Usually the people who who get to that level of politics are like maniacal extroverted backslappers who like can't live without constant approval coming into them from all directions and Bernie Sanders was known for having actually very few close relationships in the senate he would work with people sometimes but he was not a, he's not a relationship builder he just isn't he actually i think said in this new york times interview if I'm not misremembering the interview where he's like, you know, what's something you do poorly? And he said, well, I don't wish people happy birthday because I don't think it matters. Right. <laughs> and people really like it when you wish them happy birthday. But I don't know. I'm just like not good at that kind of thing. So like he won't even wish people happy birthday routinely on, on his campaign. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, is, does do more coalitional work in the Senate than than Bernie Sanders. Like you can actually see this in like the number of co-sponsors they have in bills and things, but still is not known for her great cross-party, cross-aisle relationship. She's got, you know, she does some odd bedfellows coalitions, but not much. Joe Biden, to, to, to the extent he's still doing this kind of thing, he really would sit around hanging out a lot with, you know, if she wins re-election to Susan Collins. And what that might get you is more deals that Joe Biden might think are good and the left would think are bad. And I just I want to keep emphasizing this because this is a debate they are not having. But the difference between their presidencies is not really going to be that Joe Biden passes the Biden option on health care or Bernie Sanders passes a single payer bill. It's that day to day, the way they're going to try to pass things um, is functionally going to be sort of bipartisan or partisan. um, And. That probably will mean that, you know, in the at least in the Senate's that seem likeliest, which most of them have Mitch McConnell as majority leader, uh, Joe Biden gets some things done. But those things often don't look that good to the left, Uh, whereas Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are going to focus a lot more on aggressive use of executive authority. One other point I want to make on this is just this week, um, Warren came out with an almost an update to her student debt cancellation plans where she picked up on an idea that's been floating around. The American Prospect had a piece on it a little while back. There's a, a pretty, I would say, controversial legal theory that uh, you can cancel student debt, uh, almost all of it, just through executive authority, through reading expansively something that is already in the law. And she kind of picked that up and said "said I would do it. And the the reason I bring this up is that when I was talking to Warren's people and people around her for this piece I did uh, on, on the case for her, something they argued was that a mistake that they felt Barack Obama made – was he often held regulatory regulatory authority in abeyance as a kind of stick in trying to get legislation done so he wanted to get the cap and trade bill passed but if he didn't get that he would use epa authority to regulate you know carbon from power plants Um, And they felt he had that backwards, that what you wanted to do was aggressively use executive authority to change the facts on the ground so that now corporations are screaming for relief. They desperately want legislators to come in and help them. And they use the example, um, say, of in a case where they think actually Obama did this well, different states began legalizing marijuana. The Obama administration decided to use executive authority not to um, prosecute in those states. And that created a lot more room for marijuana legalization to begin at least get put on bills in the U.S. Senate and elsewhere because there are already facts on the ground. So I, I think the student debt cancellation thing that Warren wants to do as very connected to her theory of legislating, too. It may be that that wouldn't hold up in the courts, but even the fear that it would might make a lot of these different players from student loan companies, even up to Republicans, you know, at least in theory, come to the table to, to try to get a more moderate legislative solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is definitely... I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you ask anybody, right? It's like, what is the like, what is the actual difference here, right? And this is a critical difference, right? It's like who will be appointed to lead executive branch agencies and what is their theory of what you should do? And like clearly, very clearly, like Warren Camp's theory is like, you go to the mats, right? And like you lose cases in court. And that basically, if the courts aren't ever telling you, like, no, you can't do that, that just shows you're not trying hard enough. Among other things, like, most of the judges are Republican appointees. And, you know, it's just like, that's that's life, right? And And that you can do a, a lot that way. And I think, you know, Obama's view, I think there's a lot of levels to the Obama team's disagreement with that. But, like, really one of them is that the Obama administration put a high premium on trying to make it seem like things were, like, going okay in America. And in part, this was they took over in the midst of a very chaotic economic crisis. But, like, they wanted the opposite of what you have in the Trump era, which is, like, a constant sense of roiling chaos. And, you know, Warren or Sanders would be very different from Donald Trump, but I do think would be somewhat comparable in creating a sense of freneticness and like a lot of like, oh my God, can they really do that? And like litigation and people complaining. And because Democrats are um, uh, more uh, diverse internally in terms of like what goals they want to pursue, you would see more intraparty infighting around all of these things right like if you do the strictest possible environmental regulations like joe manchin is going to complain about that and you're going to have stories about like democrats are yelling at the democratic president right and it's going to be i think in a lot of ways some some bad looks um and like part of the 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 warren theory is that like you got to push through that and that's ultimately how you're going to get things done for people And deliver, you know, big structural change or what have you. And I think Biden, you know, would be much more likely to in the in the same mold as Obama, if anything, even more so to be like, you know, concerned about appearances. Right. And like showing that he's not like, abusing his authority or constantly losing Supreme Court cases about what he can do for people and, like, not that interested in giving, like, table-pounding accounts of all the things other people are preventing him from getting done, right, that he wants to have sort of, like, feel-good moments, like that Cures Act, right, where, like, Mm -hmm. even if some of the details of it are ugly, like, the basic picture of a 95 to 5 vote is like, that's really good, right? That makes people feel like Congress is working and things are getting done and people are agreeing. And this is something you hear from people all the time, right? It's like, why are these politicians always arguing? Like, Mm -hmm. why can't they come together and and get things done? And, you know, Warren's approach, a lot of things will occur if you take her approach, but it's not gonna feel to people like getting things done. It's gonna feel like the mess in Washington.
1: I think that's right. But it would be good to hear the weeds, I think, did a good job today of actually talking about the front runner. But it would be good to hear Joe Biden or uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders making some of these arguments at debates and and hear how Biden answers. I do think there's a constantly funny um, dynamic, the debates where Warren or Biden will say something and it won't make a lot of sense. And then Pete Buttigieg will say the thing that is actually what Biden is saying. Um, (laughs) And Pete Buttigieg last night uh, was the one who made, I think, a reasonably eloquent argument for taking deals that aren't everything you want. Um, There was a kind of quick debate over the uh, the 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 new trade deal and Pete Buttigieg, I thought like had a reasonably eloquent argument for why you take that versus like Bernie Sanders who did not want to take that. But uh, but Joe, Joe Biden continues to not make a very strong case for his own brand of politics, and yet he maintains his lead in the polls. So I guess we will see. Maybe he doesn't need to. Maybe maybe it only be bad for him to actually argue for his brand of politics.
0: I mean, in some ways, I mean, I I do think it would be. I mean, I I I think that I would like to see like a crisper, like more focused kind of debate on these things. But it it is definitely true that, like, Whatever Biden is doing, it does seem to be working for him, right? And that getting into a higher level of granularity about anything does just like run the risk of making somebody hear it and be like, oh no, wait, I don't agree with that. Whereas currently, it's like just most Democrats are favorably disposed to Joe Biden. They've, well, rudiment- I
1: think that's, that's, do you believe the Des Moines Register poll or the Monmouth poll, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you don't know, because the early
1: states, he's weakening a little bit more potentially.
0: Yes. And or I maybe mean, not. I mean, one question is, like, is Biden weaker in the early states than nationally because those people have seen more mm-hmm. and, like, thought in more detail about it? Or is it just that there's fewer black people in those states?
1: Yeah, that, that that's a good question. Thank you to Matt Iglesias for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Virgin Karma for researching. The Israel Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.